Well, we're in the middle of a series called No Apologies, and I was able to introduce that series to you by inviting a guy in a couple of weeks ago named Greg Kokel, internationally renowned speaker, author, has his own radio program, and this guy has devoted his life to helping people like us understand our faith better. He has devoted his life to to Christian apologetics. And you know, if there's anyone that should know Christianity better than anyone else, should it not be the Christians? We should know our faith well enough to have great, intelligent, non-threatening conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus the way we know him. And the whole idea is to get to a place at the end where they might choose to investigate him further. That's, that's it. We want to know what we believe, why we believe it, so that we can have conversations with others. So, introduced it to you with Greg Coco. I got to teach last week on the importance of understanding, knowing and understanding and studying our Bibles. Not just reading a Bible verse, but studying the Bible in such a way that you truly know exactly what God intended when he wrote it. And then this week, well this week, I've invited another subject matter expert, someone, quite frankly, who has studied this much longer and much more deeply than I have, and he's doing it for a specific reason, and I'm going to let him tell his own story. Please welcome my friend Dennis Martin. He's going to come up, and he's going to teach this morning. And I can't wait to hear it. Like, I skipped out on you for service, so I can, I did. I did. I, I am. I am. I'm right here. I love you, buddy. Thanks for teaching today. Here we go. Take care of a few technology issues here. All right. Good morning. Let me just log in here. And uh, my screensaver kicked on here. So There we go. All right. How are you? Good. Let me try that again. How are you? There we go. There we go. Okay, good. good. All right. Well, it's a real delight to be here and a great honor to be with you this morning. Uh, I would like to start by introducing myself. Uh, Some of you know me, but uh, let me give you just a little bit more of my story here. Uh, My wife and I have been married for 31 years. She's right down here in front. (laughs) Uh, We have uh, two children. They're, They're grown now. We have a daughter and a son. Uh, they're on their own now, so, of course, that means we're empty nesters. We've been empty nesters for a few years. Uh, our daughter's married, lives in Broomfield. Our son is single, lives in Southern California. Uh, we raised our children in a Christian home, and some of the time uh, even sent them to Christian schools. Uh, I've been working full-time in the computer industry since 1980, so do a little math there, and part-time before that. So I could talk all day about computers, but that's not why I'm here today. Uh, sometime after our daughter moved out, she told us that she didn't believe in Jesus anymore. So that was kind of a shock. Um, we were surprised by this. And she didn't really give us a lot of reasons. She just said she didn't. So, you know, she's an adult. What can we do? Uh, then about two years ago, our son posted on Facebook how he has become an atheist and he no longer believes in superstitions. Well, that's kind of a shock. Um, Now, my son is a little more willing to talk about why he's come to these conclusions, so he and I have had several conversations about this. So when I first saw that post and we talked, you know, that day, one of the things I concluded was I need to get up to speed on what the atheists are saying, and I need to delve more deeply into our Christian faith to figure out what is it that we believe, why do we believe, what's the evidence for it. 
So as Pat said, I've been spending the last two years reading everything I can get my hands on relating to Christian apologetics and to atheism. Uh, as a result of my investigation, I find Christian apologetics like this. It's the art and science of defending the Christian faith. I've read more books in the last two years than I have in the previous 10 or even 15. I've attended conferences. I've become friends with other like-minded Christians uh, in the Denver area and elsewhere. Several months ago, I started attending something here locally called the Doubters Club here in the Denver area. This is a group of Christians, atheists, and other beliefs who get together and we discuss very interesting topics and we discuss them in a safe, respectful, non-threatening way. As a result of this, I actually have a number of atheists who are my friends now. A few months ago, right here on this stage, I said that I'm a Christian because I'm convinced that Christianity is true and because it provides the best explanation for what we observe. You don't need to check your brain at the door to become a Christian because there's good supporting evidence. I found that the more I study God's word and the supporting evidence, the more I'm falling in love with Jesus Christ. Christian apologetics, in my view, is an important and often overlooked component of Christian discipleship. Now, I have some bad news. We are staring down the barrel of a loaded gun, and we can no longer pretend that it's, got, it's loaded with blanks. Some of us have surrendered and fallen silent. Some of us have retreated and run away. Some of us try to pretend that there is no gun. Some of us are completely oblivious. And some of us recognize the situation and are beginning to engage. We're living in a different era now than when our parents or grandparents were the ages we are now. Our culture is changing in major ways and we need to, try, we need to train for new types of encounters. Our culture has what I call the split brain problem. On the one hand, our culture craves facts and evidence and technology. Uh, for example, in my day job, we run tests, we gather data, we publish reports, all based on observations of doing stuff in our computer lab. On the other hand, our culture believes that ethics, values, religious issues, these are all just personal preferences that have no basis in fact. Speaking to his disciples in one of his early sermons, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It seems that we Christians in this country have lost the ability to penetrate our culture to add flavor. Why has this happened? When the Puritans came to the New World many years ago, they were highly educated. The literacy rate among the men of the Puritans in the early Massachusetts and Connecticut colonies was somewhere between 89 and 95 percent. The literacy rate among males in the rest of the colonies, who were not Puritans, was closer to about 60 percent. Those Puritans founded colleges, taught their children to read and write before the age of six, and loved their God by studying science and art and philosophy and other mentally stimulating subjects. By the mid-1800s, things had begun to change. Although there were many great revivals, and much good came from these revivals, there was an overemphasis on personal feelings and relationship with Christ without much emphasis on the teachings and the content of Christianity. 
as a result of intellectually shallow and theologically illiterate form of Christianity that had developed during that time, three cults were formed. And you've probably heard of them. Mormonism, Christian Science, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Also during the 1800s, various atheistic and agnostic philosophies spread across Europe and America. As a result of this, many believers grew suspicious of intellectual issues and began to withdraw from the culture. The Sisters of Fear, known as cultural isolationism and anti-intellectualism, moved in with many believers and began to live with them. So let's jump to today. It's been said that American churches are filled with Christians who are idling in intellectual neutral. Is this a good thing? Over the past 50 years or so, and especially in the last 20 or 30, there's been a renaissance of Christian philosophy and rational Christian thought that's reignited the Christian apologetics movement. Numerous books, conferences, and other kinds of events, training events, have, have exploded in the last few years. Just two weeks ago, we held a mini-conference here. And next month, I'm going to another one. J.P. Moreland, in his book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, says this. Training in apologetics should be a regular part of discipleship. Apologetics is a New Testament ministry of helping people overcome intellectual obstacles that block them from coming to or growing in the faith by giving reasons for why one should believe Christianity is true and by responding to objections raised against it. So we're now at a crossroads. We can ignore Christian apologetics and run away with our tails between our legs whenever anyone asks us about our faith. Or we can embrace Christian apologetics and that will strengthen our faith and enable us to confidently fulfill this exhortation from the Apostle Peter. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. As Pat said, we're in the middle of a sermon series called No Apologies, and we're discussing why we believe what we believe and the evidence that supports Christianity. However, there are some people who are not followers of Jesus, and they have fairly sophisticated reasons for why they hold their position. Some are very clever, some not so much. So I'd like to discuss a few of these not-so-sophisticated reasons. So in order to help and do this, let's talk about cotton candy, all right? also known as fairy floss in Australia. Should you ever go there, ask for that. Cotton candy is served on a stick and appears quite large relative to the amount of food that it actually is. And some people would say it's not really food, but that's another, that's another topic. Uh, although eating cotton candy is, ta- is tasty, we really can't make a steady diet of this and expect to be strong and healthy. In the same way, we need solid spiritual food if we're going to be spiritually strong. One difference between cotton candy and solid food is that it takes longer to digest it and you have to chew it. It takes, it takes some effort. Apologetics is like solid food in that it takes more effort to absorb the benefits of it but it's better for you than cotton candy. Sometimes believers and non-believers engage in what I call cotton candy thinking. So before we get to the not-so-sophisticated cotton candy reasons for rejecting Christianity, I want to get our mental juices flowing and I want to ask you a couple of questions. So 
by show of hands, how many of you have heard the phrase, you can't legislate morality? Okay, okay, a few. All right, is this really true? I want to delve into this for a little bit. One of the reasons we see signs, well, we don't see it yet. There's a speed limit sign coming up. One of the reasons that we see these speed limit signs is because of public safety. We want to be concerned about that. So this means that there is a moral component to the speed limit laws. There are good reasons you ought to obey these laws. Now, think about other laws that are on the books here. Think about building codes or other traffic laws or environmental laws, any kind of law that you can think of. Do these laws have a moral component to them? Do they benefit the public good? I submit that the majority of our laws do have a moral component to them. So think about it. Morality is what's right and what's wrong. And laws generally declare one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. So the question is not whether we can legislate morality, but whose morality will we use to pass our legislation? Now there's a problem. In the final analysis, all the laws, all the laws today, all the laws from the Bible, all the laws call attention to two things. We humans don't like to adhere to external bodies of laws. And secondly, we fail to live consistently with our own internal principles. The Apostle Paul correctly identified these human traits when he said, quoting from the Psalms, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. All right, here's another question for you. Again, by show of hands, how many have heard this phrase, you shouldn't force your views on other people? All right, a lot more people. All right. A week from Tuesday is election day. Do you vote in elections? Yeah? Okay, good. What are you really doing when you vote? You cast your vote for various issues and candidates that you believe will best serve society. If you were the only person voting, then your views would prevail. However, lots of other people usually vote, so you don't automatically get your way. But if enough people vote the same way that you vote, then you do end up forcing your views on the people who vote a different way than you do. So we do force our views on others, and in fact, it's considered our patriotic duty to do so. If you don't vote, then you're saying you want other people to force their views on you. Now, you've probably heard some smart people talk about these issues, just like we've talked about here. In the same way, some people often offer these cotton candy reasons for rejecting Christianity. So some of them sound a little clever at first, but let's just see what we got here. Cotton candy claim number one. There is no truth. Sometimes called postmodernism. All right? Anybody heard that one before? All right? This claim is popular, seems to be persuasive, but let's look into it a little bit. The first thing I ask when I hear this question is, is that true? In other words, is it true that there is no truth? You see how this works? <laughs> or another way to express it may, might be, well, there's no truth except for this one. So the first principle I apply whenever I hear things like this is, does the claim stand up to itself? If it doesn't, 
then it's self-defeating and obviously false. All right, the claim that there's no truth also suggests that there's nothing to discover. As we discussed in our life group last week, we said that truth is discovered, not invented. Truth exists independently of anybody's knowledge of it. For example, gravity was true long before the scientist Sir Isaac Newton said anything about gravity. Each day we observe, we test, we assess things to determine one thing, truth. All right, let me give you an example of this. All right, this is a question for you guys here. All right, suppose we're standing around talking and I say, hey, your zipper's down. Now, that's a truth claim, right? I'm making a claim about reality. Now, you might respond, especially if you're a postmodernist, you might say, well, that's merely your socially constructed view of reality. (laughs) But what you would probably do is you'd probably just check to see if what I said was true. And if my claim was true, then you'd probably do something about it. But it's easy to check. It's easy to confirm those kind of things. All right, let's talk about another one. Cotton candy claim number two. Religion is a leap of faith and therefore should be disregarded. All right, faith is a word that's often mischaracterized. Many people equate faith with religious wishful thinking. Or they put the words leap of or blind in front of the word faith. One person put it this way. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Is that correct? No. Biblical faith is active trust. Trust must be earned. Biblical faith is grounded in evidence and reason leading us to knowledge. Now, a famous passage from the Bible is Hebrews 11.1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In some translations, the last part has the word evidence there instead of conviction. So I want to look at the first part of that verse. Let's look at hope and let's look at assurance. All right, suppose you go to the store and you buy a lottery ticket, one of those scratch-off kinds. All right, when you buy the ticket, do you hope you'll win? Yeah, right? Otherwise, why would you buy it? Do you have assurance that you'll win? No. That's why it's called gambling, right? Now, suppose you were Superman or Superwoman and your superpower was that X-ray vision that we know the Superman has, right? So you have your supervision so you can look through the scratch-off stuff and you can see whether that ticket's a winner or a loser. All right, so now you go to the store and you stand there watching these people coming to buy the lottery tickets and you can see them pulling them off. And you keep watching until you see a winner pop up that's, that's coming up and you step in line and you buy that ticket. All right, same question. Do you have hope that you'll win? Yeah. Isn't it a little different this time? Do you have assurance that you'll win? Absolutely, right? Why? Because you have evidence. You know what the winner's going to be. So let's look at what the Bible says about this kind of knowledge and evidence. Let's consider, first of all, Moses leading the children of Israel or the Hebrews out of Egypt. All right, in Exodus chapter 7... Moses is quoting God to Pharaoh as he's about to turn the Nile River into blood. And God says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, I'm putting the emphasis on know here. 
All right. When he says by this, what does he mean? Well, Moses is about to take his staff and hit the river and the river is going to turn to blood. So what God is saying here is I'm giving you physical evidence so that you can know something about me. In Mark chapter 2, here's another account. Jesus is in someone's house and he's teaching. And there's a lot of people there because he's very popular. These four guys have a friend who's paralyzed. And they want to get him in front of Jesus, but they, they know he's in the house, but they can't get in because it's too crowded. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof, tear a hole through the roof, lower him down, and drop him down right in front of Jesus. What does Jesus do here? He says, your sins are forgiven, referring to the man who's paralyzed, who's lying on the floor here. Now, this caused quite a commotion among a lot of the people in the room because some of them were quite religious, and they know that only God can forgive sins. All right, let's freeze frame right there. Those other people in the room besides Jesus, how do they know that this man's sins have been forgiven? Can they, do they, can they see it? Can they confirm it in any way? No, they can't, right? Because that's a, that's a transaction between that man and God, and they can't see that. All right, so now let's continue on. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then what does he do? He heals them. He says, take up your pallet, rise and go home. Right? So he used evidence in the physical world to confirm something that happened in the spiritual world. Right? His miracle of making him whole again confirmed the fact that he was able to also forgive his sins. So here's another case where God provides evidence in the physical world to go into the supernatural world. All right, let's skip ahead. Acts chapter 2. Peter and the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're speaking languages that they did not study. Peter preaches about Jesus and how he was crucified and rose from the dead. At the end of the sermon, he says this from Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, many of the people audience knew exactly what he was talking about because they were eyewitnesses. Again, they saw it, and so here's another case. God provides evidence in the physical world. Here's this man who was crucified and then came back to life to show something about the supernatural world. In 1 John 5, the Apostle John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So all throughout these examples, and there are lots more, several times we're told we can know. So biblical faith is not wishing, it's knowing based on evidence. All right, cotton candy claim number three. Science has proved, disproved religion. All right, is it possible for science to measure or comment on the supernatural? Let me ask it this way. Can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? All right, no. All right, the normal way you use it, any engineer types in here, try to figure out, okay, can I do something? No, you can't measure a chicken, the weight of a chicken with a yardstick. Does that prove that it has no weight? No, it proves you got the wrong tool. All right. Can you use a metal detector to detect wood or plastic or sand? No, it doesn't do that. 
Since science measures things in the natural, physical world, it cannot prove or disprove something outside of that realm. Any claim to the contrary is known as what we call a category error. In other words, you're just completely out of your mind, basically. Um, There are two conflicting definitions of science that we need to understand whenever you hear something about science. Definition number one, science is a methodology. This includes observation, experimentation, testing, repeatability, all of those things, allowing researchers to discover facts about the world. This is known as the scientific method. This is perfectly valid. However, there's a second definition of science. Science is a philosophy. This is naturalistic materialism, sometimes known as scientism. Remember when Greg Kokel was here a couple weeks ago, he spoke about the three basic worldviews. He said Christianity was a worldview that says there's physical stuff and there's immaterial or non-physical stuff, and both are real. In this naturalistic, materialistic view or scientism view, it says that only the natural, physical world exists and there's no such thing as the supernatural This view says that something is scientific only if it conforms to that view. This uses the first definition, the scientific method, but then only allows answers that fit into the second view or the second definition. Anything else is excluded without even investigating it. So this philosophy does not allow investigation to follow the evidence where it leads. For example, this view says that scientific methodologies such as intelligent design are automatically rejected without investigation because it's religion disguised as science. All right, let's get a couple examples here. Let's suppose a crime has been committed in your home. So the police come over and the investigator is looking around, looking at things, and they see some footprints that aren't yours. And so he starts following these footprints around. And he goes through one room and another, and he goes down the hall, and then there's this door that goes into the garage, and he's going, the footprints lead into the side door into the garage. And he goes, wait, I live in an apartment, and I don't believe that garages exist, so I'm not going to go in there and look for any more clues. What would you think of that kind of investigator? He's not doing his job, right? All right, let me give you another example. A prominent citizen has been murdered. So the police chief is in there talking with all the detectives. And he says, all right, you need to use your best forensic methods and tools and don't leave any stone unturned. We have to find the killer because this is a very prominent citizen. Oh, and one more thing, you can't implicate a woman. What would you think about the investigator? Is he biased? Is he trying to push the investigation one way or another? Is that the right way to do it? No, it's not. All right, I'm going to give an explanation of a couple of terms, and then I'm going to read a quote from a scientist. Uh, How many of you have heard of Rudyard Kipling? All right, he has something called the Just So Stories. And these are fanciful tales. They're kids' stories about how the tiger got his stripes and the leopard got his spots and all kinds of fun things like that. Uh, I say that because this person I'm about to quote is going to refer to those Just So Stories. One other term I want to explain is called a priori. It's a Latin term. It means from the earlier. It means reasoning from deduction without examining any evidence. All right, so now that we've got those two things in mind, let me read this from you. This is Richard Lewontin. He's a retired Harvard genetics professor. 
And he wrote this in the New York Review of Books. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts to produce material explanation no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles can happen. What he's saying is, the game is rigged. Only certain answers are allowed. Other ones are immediately rejected. All right, cotton candy claim number four. God doesn't exist because of things I don't like. All right, that sounds kind of funny. This is actually part of a larger issue that we don't have time to get into here, but sometimes you hear this cotton candy reasoning. Let me give you an example. Uh, Suppose two guys are having a conversation. The first guy says, I can't believe in God. Well, why not? Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts? What's wrong with Brussels sprouts? Have you ever tasted those things? They taste terrible. I hate Brussels sprouts. In fact, I can't believe in a God that would create something that is so distasteful to me. Is that good thinking? No, it's not. Is that a good reason not to believe in God or to try to deny that God exists simply because of something you don't like? All right, just for the record, I used to be a member of the Brussels sprouts hating club. All right? But... One time I went to a restaurant and they prepared Brussels sprouts differently than the way they're usually prepared. And they actually tasted pretty good. So it's all in how you cook them, I guess. All right, think for a minute about things you don't like. Think about some object, maybe some food, maybe a certain brand of a product, maybe a person you disagree with. Just think of things you don't like. Or think about things that you think you wouldn't like. Maybe things that are unknown, or maybe the future, or maybe some place you haven't visited yet, or a number, any of other number of things. Is it possible that God has good reasons to permit the existence of those things, even if you don't like them? And is it possible that he has reasons for doing this that are beyond your understanding? All right, now this can lead into much heavier, interesting topics. And we've discussed some of these in our life group, which is an apologetics-oriented life group. All right, so I've talked about a a few cotton candy reasons for rejecting Christianity. As I mentioned, there are more sophisticated reasons that take a lot more effort and study than, than you can do in just a few minutes. While Christianity makes moral and ethical demands on some people, or that or that some people find uncomfortable, this discomfort does not make it untrue. Christianity is not based on wishful thinking 
but on historical facts, specifically the historical facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Earlier this year, I read through the book of Acts. In several places, the belief in Jesus Christ is discussed. Not once is the belief in Christ promoted so that people will feel good about themselves. It's always discussed in the context of historical facts that show it to be true. I want to quote from J.P. Moreland again. The spiritually mature person is a wise person, and a wise person has the savvy and skill necessary to lead an exemplary life and to address the issues of the day in a responsible, attractive way that brings honor to God. Just like discipleship, apologetics requires study and effort. God has not only commanded us to be ready with a defense, but has actually made it achievable for us. In 2 Timothy, we read, For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And that word discipline can also be translated sound judgment. So he's given this to us. Apologetics teaches us that we should have good reasons for thinking and believing that Christianity is true. Apologetics teaches us to study the Bible and ask, what is the context? What does the text actually say? And why do I think my interpretation is correct? Apologetics teaches us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Thanks. Thank you, Dennis. So I hope that begins to foster some thought. Wait, wait a minute. I need, is my zipper okay? Just, just check and see if it's true. So, I mean, he, he brings up some really good arguments. I mean, some of the objections that people have to Christianity just don't make sense. I mean, on their face, and they're fairly easy to simply have a really good, intelligent response to. And we should begin to learn what those responses look like. I very much appreciate that you, both your willingness to teach and, and your passion to teach this topic and help us better understand this thing called Christianity. And, and not, not for our benefit, and, and certainly not for God's benefit, but for the benefit of those God loves so desperately that don't yet know Jesus the way we know Jesus. That is the single most important reason we should know what we know. And we should know why we know it, so that we can share it with those who don't know Jesus the way we do. I'm going to go ahead and ask my ushers to get prepared for our time of giving. I'd like to offer you the opportunity to prepare for that as well. I know some of us are check writers. This gives you an opportunity to get that, that check done. Others of us very much like to do things in the digital realm. Uh, many of us, like Winnie and I, we simply set our giving as an automated kind of thing that happens routinely. You can do that online at our website. And then others are just very, very interested in using the phone and giving digitally. And there's instructions on how to do that as well. So while you prepare and while they prepare, I I just want to say I hope you can understand why I invited Dennis to teach today. Not only is he very, very well studied in this this discipline of Christian apologetics, but he's got skin in the game. 
skin in the game and a son and a daughter who were grown up in the faith and have decided as adults that they don't believe. That motivated him to spend two years of deep study. Now, you may not have a son or a daughter that doesn't know Jesus, but my guess is you've got a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. And I would hope you would consider that skin in the game. As we, as we get ready for our offering time, I'm hoping that I can bring some encouragement to Dennis and, and Deanne and even the rest of us for the hope that we have. And I'm going to do that by way of a story. Let me go ahead and invite the ushers to come down and go ahead and get started passing the baskets. I, w- I would say that, that Dennis and Deanne not only have great hope, but they have great faith. I want to remind you one of the passages that Dennis talked about today, and it was out of Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 1. And it said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, I believe demonstrations of great faith are met by demonstrations of great faith. Demonstrations of great faith on our part are met with demonstrations of great faith on God's part. So I want to tell you a story. You see, our generosity allows things like Christian apologetics to continue to happen. It allows teaching in the church so you and I can have answers when asked a question. There's a guy named Christopher. And Christopher was living a lifestyle that most of us would consider. In fact, I would say 100% of us would consider not an okay lifestyle. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details. Suffice to say that, that it got him landed in jail, among other things. And this isn't really a story about Christopher as much as it's a story about his mother. His mother knew about his lifestyle long before he landed in jail. And, and he similarly grew up as a child of faith and chose to go down a different path and decided he couldn't believe in a God because the lifestyle that he wanted to live, God didn't approve of. Therefore, there is no God and I'm going to live life my way. And living life his way landed him in prison for over 10 years. This is a story about a mom who before the kid landed in prison pray every single day. There are pictures in the book about this of a prayer closet that she had. A prayer closet with sticky notes up and down every single wall. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of prayers that she went in there every morning and she prayed for her boy. There's notebooks filled with pages of her prayers. For over eight years, she prayed for her baby boy every day. Even while he was in prison. And in prison, he got hold of a Bible and decided to read. And God got hold of his heart. And he dedicated his life to Christ. And he studied and he read. And he got in a, a one-on-one with the prison chaplain. And he studied and he read. Then he decided he needed more education. So he rolls in an online course while he's in prison. And he gets his bachelor's. In Christian studies. Then he finally gets out of prison and he chooses to go back to school and he gets his master's of divinity. And he wasn't done yet. He decided to get his doctorate and today he is a professor teaching at Moody Bible Institute. This young man who decided God didn't exist because, well, God doesn't allow me to do the things that I like to do, has become one of the world's greatest proponents of the Christian faith. And I share that. Because I want to share with Dennis and Deanne, your study will not go 
unrewarded. I believe we have a God that rewards great faith. I believe, yes. I believe with all my heart, your continued prayers, your continued conversations with kids that are willing to engage will one day pay off. And I believe you're going to see them exactly where you believe they should be. Deeply in love with God and sharing him with others. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for Dennis. I thank you for Deanne. And I even thank you, Lord, for the challenge in their life right now. The challenge of kids who have wandered and aren't sure that they can believe in you. Father, I thank you because it's driven Dennis and Deanne to more deeply investigate the faith they have to be able to defend you to their children. I pray for their kids. I pray your hand would be upon them. I pray that through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in their lives that you would reveal to them the truth that God is real, that he sent his son to die for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. He rose defeated death and gave us an opportunity to do the same. I long for the day that I hear from Dennis and he can tell me that his kids once again believe in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.